We begin this morning a new six-week series in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. Now, the book of Ezra is a historical book in the Bible. And so it's found in the first part of the Old Testament. So as you're turning in your Bibles to Ezra, you'll find it right after 2 Chronicles, right before Nehemiah, Job. If you've gone to Psalms, stop. You've gone too far. Turn left. You're lost. So turn left if you get to Psalms and find Ezra. It's a historical book. Why are we studying the book of Ezra? Because this book is about God's faithfulness. In fact, the title of our message this morning, God Keeps His Promises, is the theme of the book of Ezra. That's why we're studying that book. Because we need to hear and believe and apply the fact that God keeps His promises. And here's the question. What promises did God make and keep here in the book of of Ezra? And to answer that question, we need to understand about how Ezra fits into the history of redemption. Perhaps an illustration will help you understand how Ezra fits into redemption's story. Any TV series, whether it's Downton Abbey, Blue Bloods, or classics like The Office, or my personal favorite, 24, usually begin with a pilot episode where the primary storyline is created and produced and the characters are chosen and it's developed. And if that pilot episode goes well, then there's a contract to produce season one. And if season one has good ratings, then more seasons follow. In 24's case, there were nine seasons. There were new plot twists, but the same storyline was there. There were new characters added in and out. 24 was known for its shocking plot twist, often removing key characters in the most surprising manner and time. In fact, the actors in the series often commented that every week when they came in to read their script, they wondered, well, is this the week that I am going to be in an untimely manner terminated? Actually, there's only one character that appeared in every single episode of 24, and that would be Jack Bauer, the counter-terrorist unit agent who's the main protagonist of that series. He's this flawed but heroic figure. Joel Chernow and Robert Cochran created the main idea or story for 24, and they hired writers to come up with the interesting scripts and plot twists every season for nine seasons, and they cast the actors to act out their lines and to read the scripts that the writers wrote. They directed the filming And the result was a riveting, award-winning TV series. What's the point, Al? Here's the point. As the main idea or storyline of 24 was written by its human creators, so the main storyline, the main story of redemption was written by God himself. He authored the script. He cast every character. He continues to direct each episode, each season, producing season after this season until one day he will bring this series to an end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. The one character who appears in every season of Redemption's story. 
He is the main character. God in the flesh. The Bible is God's story. And oh, what a story. Oh, what a season. Forget award winning. This is the series of series. For it's true. And the protagonist isn't a flawed hero. He's a perfect hero. He's not an imaginary hero. He's a real hero. And this story, redemption story, plays out and has played out and will play out until Christ returns on the stage of human history with the main character, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, front and center. He is the main character of God's redemption story in the pages of Scripture. He came the first time to fulfill redemption's promise. And he will return a second time to consummate that promise. And every book, or should I say every season of the series, points to Christ. Brian Chappell, in his excellent book on expository preaching entitled Christ-Centered Preaching, says the following, every text in the Bible is either predictive of the work of Christ preparatory for the work of Christ or reflective of the work of Christ, resulting from the work of Christ. We just finished a series in the book of Romans in the New Testament. That book, post-Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, reflects back on him and it is the result of what he's done. Now, we jump to the other side. Because I want to see Christ, don't you? Show us Christ. Now we jump to the Old Testament, B.C., before Christ. And Ezra is going to now re, is going to predict. It's going to be predictive of the work of Christ. It's going to prepare for the work of Christ. That's why we come to the book of Ezra. We are before Christ's incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And what Ezra teaches us is this. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. Ezra is the key figure in this season. I was thinking about it. What season would this be? Like 24 had nine seasons. I don't know. If every season is like 500 years, and if you start in Genesis, would this be like season 9, 10, 11? I don't know. But it's one of the seasons still before Christ's actual appearance in the flesh. And in this season... As the season begins, and we're going to look at the beginning of the season in Ezra 1.1, the first episode of the season, we see Ezra. We see Ezra. And we need to ask ourselves, where do we find Ezra as the season begins? And that's a great question. I've prepared for that question with this map for you. So where do we find Ezra? We find Ezra right here in the city of Babylon. Now Ezra is a Jewish priest scribe. So as this season opens, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jack, I mean Ezra, doing in Babylon? I thought that priests, scribes should be in Jerusalem. And if you thought that, you would be right. So what we have to ask ourselves, keeping that map up there, is how did Jack, I mean Ezra, get to Babylon? There's a famous line When you watch 24, at the beginning of each episode, Jack Bauer himself narrates and he says the following, previously on 24. So, previously on Redemption Story. 
Some five, 50 years before the first words penned in Ezra, which are penned from Babylon by Ezra, some 50 years earlier in Jerusalem, approximately 586 B.C., before Christ, God, having warned his people that their rebellion would result in his judgment, kept his promise and used the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, taking a majority of Israel, indicated by this brown line that shows Israel's exile, taking the majority of Israel out of the promised land into pagan Babylon. Now, what's the problem here? Well, here's the problem. And I've got to go again, previously on 24. As a matter of fact, I don't know what season we're in, but I've got to take you back to the pilot. Remember that pilot episode? You ever watch like the first season of 24? Like everybody's really young in that, okay? But let's go back to the pilot episode of 24. I want to take you back to that pilot episode because in that pilot episode is where we're going to learn about the promise that we see God keeping in Ezra that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because in the pilot episode, all the way back to the beginning of time, if you want to say 4,000 BC, 5,000 BC, whatever you want to say, we find God creating man and woman, creating mankind, and putting them in a garden and saying, I want you to work the garden and I want you to worship me. And they literally were in paradise. Plotline is great. Everything's fine until man decides to disobey God. So in the pilot, we've got God saying to man, if you eat of that fruit, you'll die. If you disobey me, you'll die. And he does, in fact, eat of that fruit and he dies. But right there in the pilot, God inserts the protagonist. Right there in that pilot, God says, though you have sinned against me and deserve my wrath and my punishment, and you will die, Adam eventually died, and he died spiritually in that moment. He said to them, but from the seed of the woman, I will bring one who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The serpent having been the one to deceive Adam and Eve, and they willingly disobeyed. Right there, God introduces the protagonist. Right there, God introduces the gospel. There we have it. And all through season one, two, three, four, five, who is the protagonist? It's this savior. It's this one who would crush the head of the serpent. And Ezra knew that. Remember, he was a prescribe. He'd gone to seminary. He also knew that a couple of seasons later, who knows when, 1,500, 2,000 B.C., God said, okay, I'm going to further identify this seed that will be the Savior. He's going to come from you, Abraham, you nomad. By the way, where did Abraham come from? came from this area, Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, you do recognize what this area is, right? This is the area that's hot in the news today. This is Iraq. This is Iran. This is Turkey. This is Syria. Over here are all the stands, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, all the, you know, Pakistan, all that. This is the area of the world right now where all, all the trouble is, right? Interesting, huh? How God has written season, whatever we're in. Jesus is still Lord. But back then, Ezra finds himself in exile in Babylon, and he remembers that that seed was further identified as coming from Abraham, whom God chose as a Hebrew. And God said, I'm going to make of you a nation, Abraham, even though you're from this area here and you're a don't know anybody. Now I'm going to introduce myself to you. I'm going to call you and I'm going to give this land right here, this little strip of land. That's the promised land. And from your seed, 
from a Jew will come the Savior of the world. Ezra knew that. But you see, Ezra, much like 24, finds himself in a series that begins very badly. How can our hero be born of the promised people here when the promised people have disobeyed God and God has evicted them from the promised land and and ten of the tribes probably are lost. There's only two left, the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And will these tribes stay pure so that the Savior can come from this tribe? And what about the promised land? How can we go back to the promised land and how can God deliver a Savior in the promised land when the people are in exile, in disarray? It's been 50 plus years. The land is crushed. The city destroyed. The temple is gone. God, are you faithful to your promises? Guys, that's what makes the Old Testament so exciting. Will God keep his word? That's the narrative of the Old Testament. Will a savior come from these people? And who is he? Now we know the answer now, but they didn't. Ezra didn't know. And so that's the question that rocks this text. Even though God's promise appears to be in trouble. Even though God God has evicted his chosen people from the promised land and placed them in exile, will he keep his promise? Or, Or has the sinfulness of man somehow abrogated, nullified the promise of God? Has it? Sure looks like it. It's not looking good. Jack's in trouble. He's wounded. He's lost. He's captured, whatever it is. Many creative ways to put Jack in trouble. But this is for reals. And so God introduces Ezra into this redemption story at precisely this moment to answer this question, this this Jewish scribe. And so in Ezra 1, 1 through 5, we hear the answer from God, whether he keeps his promises. Are you there? Are you still looking for Ezra? Has he eluded you? Try the table of contents. My Bible, it's page 389. Here we go. You ready? Ezra 1, 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord for the the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold and with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Lord, help us. Help us to understand this. Help us to, to be stirred in our hearts by your spirit. And help us now, Lord, to receive your grace through your word. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In these first five verses of Ezra chapter 1, we find Ezra approximately in about 539 B.C. or 538 B.C. penning these amazing words that God 
has not forgotten his people. That God keeps his promises. That is what we learn from Ezra. And that is the first point of our message. That though God's people are in exile, God has not, nor will he ever forget his covenant people. Point one. God remembers his covenant people. Emphasis on covenant. You get that? See, it's God's covenant that he will never, never change or abrogate. It is God's covenant. God is faithful to himself and God is faithful to his own word and God is faithful and his covenant people, he will never forget. Nor his covenant word. Look with me at verse one. We see here that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we know by historians that that year is 539 BC. So right around 539 to 538 BC is what we're talking about. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in 586 BC, so roughly about 50 years have transpired. Since then, God has raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia, to conquer Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, or the Chaldeans. And put the second map up there, please. So that this whole area, now, this whole area in 539 BC is, is owned by the Persians. And now Cyrus is living in Babylon. He's conquered Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, this is all those areas. Modern-day Turkey, Syria, Israel, uh, Iraq, Iran, right through here. You know what this Drangiana is? Modern-day Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Turkestan. This is the Caspian and Black Seas. This is where all the things are happening today. So this was the Persian Empire of the day. So the area beyond the river is this area that is uh, modern-day Israel, right here. So Cyrus is king over all of that area. And God does an amazing thing. God speaks to Cyrus's heart. He stirs Cyrus's heart because God, according to verse 1, what does it say? That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What did God say to Jeremiah? We might not be conversant with that. Oh, Ezra would have been very conversant with it. Well, let's go to Jeremiah 25.11 on the screen. Here is what God said to Jeremiah some 70 years earlier. That now he is stirring a pagan king's heart to fulfill. God's in control. God's in control. Listen to what Jeremiah spoke. While he was still in Israel, while he was around 600 BC, this is what he penned. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall shall serve the king of of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting way. So what Jeremiah said is, listen, I'm going to punish my people for their disobedience and I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, put the map back up there, and he's going to come across and he's going to conquer Israel, which he did. 586 BC. And then because of Nebuchadnezzar's sin, I'm going to raise up another king who's going to conquer him. And he did. It's Cyrus. And now it's 539 BC. So God keeps his word. Well, the second one is Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
And that's exactly what God has done. He stirred the heart of a pagan king to make a proclamation that was most likely written by Jewish advisors. Remember, the Jews had been there for over 50 years. So probably some of the lawyers and some of the legal aides and some of the aides to the senator and the governor and one of the president's staff guys is a Jewish guy. He's been born and raised in Babylon. He's really smart. And so he is writing the proclamation that God stirred Cyrus's heart to write and you know how he writes it, the kind of language that he uses? He uses the language of a second exodus. Remember, he's a Jew. Put the map back up there. So this Jew is thinking, hey, wait a second. This is too good to be true. I mean, one day I wake up and I open the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, or I get a briefing on my, on my text, on my email. Hey, the king just has a new policy. Kind of like what happened recently toward a country that we all love and some of us came from. Uh, There's a new policy. What? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And unlike the recent policy, this one actually made sense. Oh, did I say that? All right, I'll reel it back in. So listen, these Jewish guys are saying, wait a second, wait a second. This is sounding an awful lot like the exodus that occurred in Moses' time in 1500 B.C., roughly. When God raised up the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and brought them into the promised land and made a covenant with them. Hey, 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 this is the second exodus in 500 B.C. Where God's people are in exile because of their sin, but God, because of his mercy and covenant, is raising up a leader. This time, not Moses, but Ezra and another guy named Zerubbabel. It's a fun name to say, isn't it? Zerubbabel. And we're going to go back, just like they went back from Egypt back in the 1500s BC. In the 500 BCs, God's taking us back. Why? Why is it so important to go to Israel? Because there's the promised land. That's where the promise is going to be born. Is God faithful to keep his promises? Is he? He dealt with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and delivered his people. And when they went out, remember what they did? They plundered the Egyptians. I don't know if you remember that. By the way, don't go see that movie by that same name, Exodus. They certainly weren't reading the Bible, that's for sure. But they plundered the people, and God delivered them. And now we see here that they're going to plunder the people. Uh, Look at it with me there. Look what it says there in verse um, 4. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with... uh, Beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So here, God moves the heart of a king, and God is going to have his people now plunder their own captors, and God's going to deliver them from captivity back to the promised land. Listen, here's the point I want to make to you. No matter what happens today, events are never out of control, God's control. Everything goes against, toward, everything goes according to God's script. His decrees, His sovereign will. We don't know it, but it's happening. It's like a a series of 24. You know the riders are not going to kill Jack, but it looks like he's about to die. But he's going to come out of it. And so God's going to keep His word, even to the point of ruling the heart 
of a pagan king. That's what Proverbs 21.1 says on the screen. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Listen, here's the application. Don't be worried about recent events in Europe. Don't be worried about whether those attacks are coming to the United States. Don't be worried about your own community, our nation. Listen, they're, gonna, they're about to announce all the candidates for the next presidential election. It's happening. They've already announced one. Usually it's around late January, February when they announce you're going to go, wow, no, wait, another election. Oh, the last two, I'm not sure. And No, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about it in your own life, in this church, in your family, in this community. God is faithful. He keeps his promises, and everything is going according to his script. Now, we may come in, and, and we may read, what? You wrote me out of this one? And if he did, we'll go to your funeral. No, no. If he did... Just kidding. If he did, listen, if he, if he writes out key characters from our church, be at peace, brothers and sisters. Be at peace. I'm in charge. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. I love what James Hamilton, in his wonderful commentary entitled Christ-Centered Exposition, Exalting Jesus in Ezra and Nehemiah says about this point. This world is God's stage. The bad guys have their strongholds, but they remain God's characters. This is God's cosmic drama. He will have his way. Amen and amen. Ezra 1 and 2 shows God keeping his promise and initiating the first installment of the second exodus to get his people back to Jerusalem, the promised land, and to rebuild the temple. Listen, God didn't just stir the the heart of a pagan king. He stirred the heart of his own people. Look at verse 6. 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin. These are Jews. And the priests and the Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Same verbiage here. The same way God stirred Cyrus' spirit, God stirred the spirit of his people. He's the God of all creation. He's the God of every nation. And he holds the king's heart in his hand. But he's particularly, uniquely the God of his people. Man's disobedience, which got Israel exiled to Babylon, can never thwart the covenant faithfulness of God. Ever. Not in your life, not in this narrative. Never. May God stir up our spirits today, my friends, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our greater Moses, first Exodus. He's our greater Ezra, the second Exodus. And he leads us out of bondage and he leads us out of exile so that we might rebuild his house, the church. He keeps his promises. And he plunders the enemy to populate heaven. Let's go out taking what is God's. It's called discipleship. It's called those that are fast bound in darkness right now in this city who are God's elect, but they are bound with the chains of God. Let's go plunder them in Jesus' name with the gospel, not with violence. That's not the way of God. With the gospel. May I speak to you, dear unbeliever, who are here this morning. First of all, thanks for coming. I I don't know you personally. You might be curious about the gospel. Thank you for coming. But I want to say this to you. Just as there was a first exodus from Egypt to the promised land, and just like there is a second exodus, which we will be studying these next six weeks, 
from Babylon back to the promised land. There is a greater exodus. There's an exodus that began when Jesus was on this earth and in Luke 9 when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's talking with Moses and Elijah and it says that he's preparing his departure from Jerusalem. This final exodus that begins, that began with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and then his ascension into heaven. And it will end when he returns again and brings us all into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Friend, listen to me. That exodus is the one that's the most important. It informs this exodus. And that exodus is only for those who trust in Christ, who has forgiven our sins. It is only for those who trust in Jesus that they can participate in that exodus. It's that exodus that will happen when he returns. And I pray that this would be your story, that, that, that you would be written into this story. I don't know what episode, maybe today's episode. I pray that Jesus would be your confession. You would trust him. Well, God not only keeps his promises by remembering his covenant people, but point two, God keeps his promises by readying his covenant people. God readies his covenant people. We see this in verses 6 to 11. We see that they plundered Babylon, as I mentioned earlier. We see that today Jesus, Jesus plunders the enemy. I, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is in Colossians. I love this text. Colossians chapter 2. And it's this idea of of Jesus plundering the enemy, making a show of the enemy openly on the cross. Colossians 2.13. It's not on the screen, sorry, but I just listened to it. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we celebrated in communion. I love verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He plundered them by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. In whom? In Christ. The greater Moses, the greater Ezra, the one who leads us in the greater Exodus. And this is what we're called to do. What the gospel enables us to do. And what's even more amazing, listen, you know how God readies his people? He returns to his people the the treasure. Really, this was a treasure worth much, much money by the hand of Cyrus, the pagan king. Look with me in verse 7. Amazing. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And then he goes on to list all these vessels. What's amazing is Cyrus says, you know what? And when you go back to rebuild the temple, I want you to take all this gold, all these vessels, all this silver that's worth an inordinate amount of money because they don't belong in the temples of our God, small g. They belong in the temple of your God, big g. Now, Cyrus didn't fully understand that. I get that. But we do. That's part of the plundering. God takes you and me who are sitting in some pagan idol, worshiping some pagan God, and he says, no, that's not where you belong. Go into the temple, Jesus. Worship the true and living God. Take that treasure there. That's what God does. And what's also amazing is how God keeps his word. Because in Jeremiah 27, 21, and 22, 70 years earlier, God made this call. And he was absolutely right. Of course, he writes the script. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord. Remember, the temple was still up at this point. And in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. And that happened in 586 B.C. And remain there until the day when I visit them. God visited Cyrus. He's visiting now these articles. They're his, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. And that's exactly what God did. God visits us and he transforms unholy worshipers of idols into holy worshipers of God through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit because God keeps his promises. Third point, God keeps his promises by releasing his covenant people. God releases his covenant people. Listen, chapter 2, we're not going to be able to read it. It has 70 verses. You think the names last week were difficult. (laughs) You do not want to mess around with the names in chapter 2. But listen, think of chapter 2 this way. You ready? Tiffany's going to love this. Think of chapter 2 as one big church membership directory. There's your, there's your commercial, right? We're putting one together. Please see Tiffany if you're a member. She's going to take your picture. And we're going to make this church directory. This is a church directory. See, this is a list of all the people who went back in the first wave with a guy named Zerubbabel. Uh, Ezra is going to go back in the second wave some 50 years later. And then 50 years after that, Nehemiah is going to go back in the third wave. But this first wave with Zerubbabel, they're going to build the temple. It will, the second temple will be finished, by the way, around 516 B.C., about 70 years after the first one was destroyed. But this is a listing of who went back. This is a listing of the members. This is the people that God said are my people. These people still have a memory of the promised land. 50 years later, they're still saying, I'm of this tribe. I used to live there. It's like my mom when I went back to Cuba. She said, Oye, Bertico, yo quiero que tú a, a Calle Tacón en Cienfuegos para ver mi casa. Albert, I want you to go back to Calle Tacón, which is her street. Go to this house. And I went there. My mom's been in this country for over 60 years, and she remembers where she lived in Cuba. Of course she does. And even more. Even more, these are God's people who have been evicted from God's promised land by God, but they remembered because God enabled them to remember. And now, 50-some years later, they're going back. They're going back. And all we have here, if you just look at it briefly with me, from verses 2b to 20, you've got everybody listed by family relationship. That's how our church membership is, right, Tiffany? It's by family relationship. But guess what? In verses 21 to 35 of chapter 2, everybody's listed by where they're from. So imagine a directory where we said, everybody from Texas over here, everybody from Louisiana over here, everybody from Cuba, oh, we got to make a bigger spot, over here, everyone from Oklahoma over here. If we did that right now in this building, it would be a funny, right now you're arranged by family, I'm assuming, unless you're mad at your spouse or brother or sister and not seated with them. But what if we arranged you all from where you were born? Everybody from the Bronx over here. One person. (laughs) Two people, ah, you see. And, moving further, in verses 36 to 39, they're identified by their leadership teams, by what they do. I think our membership is going to have a section for leadership teams. They're identified by singers. Zeke, you're in this thing. Verses 40 to 42, the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. Singing was very important. They were singing the Psalms of David. Okay? Even gatekeepers. I'm going to to leave you with this. What's amazing here? is gatekeepers, 138 of them, are going to be sent back to guard the gate, which is what they did. They opened the gate and they closed the gate for a temple that doesn't exist yet. Why? Because God's faithful. Because God keeps his promise. Because it's a certainty. It's called the prophetic certainty. Here's my appeal to you. Jack Bauer is the main protagonist of the series 24. But he was a flawed, fictional hero. 
But you knew that he would win the day no matter how dark it got in the middle of the season. Jesus is the main character, the protagonist of God's redemption story. And thus of scripture. And he is the perfect real hero. The promised savior. Born of the seed of Abraham. In the promised land. He would be born 500 years. Some 500 years after Ezra pens these words. He would prove that God keeps his promises. Jesus won the day. He endured the dark day of his death on the cross. Where he atoned for our sins. He emerged in the brilliant life of his resurrection. He ascended into heaven, beginning that last and final exodus. And he promises us to share with us the glory with which he now shares with the Father again. God created the story of redemption. God wrote the script before the foundation of the world. God calls every character to play his role. And he calls us to live out our part by faith in Christ. At times we grow weary. At times we are confused. At times we're not really sure what episode or season we're in. We're not sure what tomorrow's script will hold for us. Whether God may remove a key character from this church, from our lives. Lord, what are you doing? But what we do know is how the series ends. We've got that. It's a glorious ending for those of us in Christ. So in light of that ending, may we by grace remain faithful. Because God is faithful. God keeps his promises. Let's pray and worship team join me up front. Father, I pray right now that you would call the hearts of your people right now and stir them up, Lord. Lord, show us Christ. Lord, may we see Jesus, the one who is the protagonist from the beginning to the end, the one who is the Savior you promised. You are faithful. You keep your promises. You keep them to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's someone here that even now is feeling life stirring in their hard, dead heart, that your word has been poured out on them and it's softened that ground, your spirit has been tenderizing and convicting and giving life to dead, lifeless eyes and ears to understand. Lord, would you, would you bring them to yourself now? And even as we we, we pray this and confess this and sing this, Lord, show them, show us Christ. Encourage your people that we might be those who make disciples with the gospel, Father. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.